when I hear people, Brother Dave, say that, you know, we can't change this stuff, well, yes, we can because we've done it before. There used to be a time in America where there was segregation, whites-only signs and colors-only signs, but because of movement, protest, people in the streets, white folks, black folks, all kinds of folks, we push those things away. That's what's happening now. We're pushing those things away. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Our guest this week is journalist and activist Kevin Powell, who is author of the new book, When We Free the World. Thrilled to have him on the show to speak about this moment in our history. Also, I've got some choice words about Avery Brundage and a certain statue that's coming down that absolutely hits at that intersection of sports, politics, history, and memory. Also, I've Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more, but first, let's talk to Kevin Powell. So when we free the world, Kevin Powell, what, what inspired you to write this book? Why this book and why now? Well, you know, I had my own racist, ex- racist experience with Minnesota, as, as I believe you know, in 2018. Uh, uh, my wife and I were sued for defamation by a white sister and a very overzealous white brother lawyer. Uh, for an email that I used, uh, an email response to an email that was really horrific sent to my to my wife, and I spent some time just trying to find out who the person was, where it came from, because she was so my wife was so upset about it. And you know, I've sent plenty of responses to people. You're a journalist, you know. Sometimes we respond to people on social media via email, you know, because we get attacked for being in the public eye. You know certainly what I'm talking about because you write really powerful pieces that draw emotions from people from all spectrums politically. No way in my, my imagination could I, have, I could have thought that someone would actually turn around and say, hey, you're Kevin Powell. You were on MTV's The Real World. You wrote for Vibe magazine. You're a, a speaker around the country, and you're a quote-unquote celebrity author, so we're going to sue you for half a million, half a million to a million dollars for defamation. And I ended up spending a year, we ended up spending a year being dragged back and forth to Minnesota. Actually, we're put on trial, Dave, um, uh, with a white woman Republican judge, a jury that was all white except for an Asian American sister. And we lost. And we were expected, <laughs> literally, to uh, pay, you know, about $400,000, I think, in total uh, in a judgment, which is absolutely insane. The lawyer... Aaron Scott, who works with Fox Rothschild out of Minneapolis, and we know that Fox Rothschild is one of the big law firms in the country, who just put out a statement, by the way, in the first week of June, saying they were supporting Black Lives Matter and diversity and inclusion, and were announcing a new diversity and inclusion person. This law firm allowed this gentleman to, to go uh, buck wild, to use the legal system, in my opinion, to commit a legal lynching against my wife and I. That was the impetus for the book. You know, because I thought it was such an egregious and horrific experience. I had never experienced anything like that in my life, you know, and it made me think about, well, what is what is the justice system? You know, where someone like me, who is just an activist and author, certainly by no means stretch of the imagination, even wealthy, can wind up being caught up in this web of stuff. And this could go on and on and on. And then at the end of the day, actually have a judgment against them, in spite of the fact that people like me don't really make money. Activists don't make money unless you're a corrupt, uh, criminalistic activist who's hustling people, something I've never done. And as you know, Dave, most writers don't make any money. You know, we just do enough to make enough to get by. 
what kind of system do we live in where this kind of thing could happen in broad daylight? And then even after the judgment came down, the two newspapers out there in Minnesota, the city, city pages, the weekly paper and the Star Tribune, the daily paper, actually both wrote articles where they trashed me and my wife, which led to racist trolls following, hitting, harassing us on, on, on email and across social media, literally calling me a quote-unquote rapist because the white sister, when she was on trial, actually said that she felt like what happened, an email, an email was a her me too moment and that she felt like she had been raped. This is the context of why I decided to write this book. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I can't, what were your thoughts as Minneapolis became the epicenter for this 50 state, if not international uprising against racist police violence and racial inequity? I mean, you, you must have th thought to yourself, this is almost too bizarre to imagine. It was uh, surreal because I'll tell you something, um, both white sisters and brothers and black sisters and brothers when I was on trial in Minnesota, and I can't even believe I, I am saying the words on trial because, I mean, you know, I'm a, the only thing I should be going to jail for is protests and things like that. But, you know, they kept saying that there's this term called Minnesota nice, which means that Minnesota actually is worse in a lot of ways than Mississippi. This was said to us two years ago in 2018 that the racism here, they'll, 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 they'll lift up Prince, they'll lift, lift up athletes like Kevin Garnett and Kirby Puckett who've made their name in Minnesota. They'll lift up the names of some of the football players like Adrian Peterson and, and, and other black players who played for the Minnesota Vikings. But at the end of the day, a lot of the black folks there and the white folks, the black folks that migrated from places like Mississippi to Minnesota, said that the racism, racism in Minnesota they felt was worse. So fast forward to me watching the video, eight minutes, 46 seconds, the officer Derek Chauvin, you know, looking emotionless as he is kneeing George Floyd to death. I'll be honest with you, Dave, the way I felt is how I felt in the trial when this woman got up on the stand, April Sellers, and said that this was her quote-unquote Me Too moment and that she felt raped. I felt exactly the same way. Black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. That's how I felt. I, I, gotta, I gotta ask you, like, um, writing about it now in this book, I mean, I, I've always known you to be fearless, but are you concerned at all about this person coming after you again now that you're writing about it and speaking about the experience? I think that people would be absolutely foolish in this climate where Minnesota has been exposed and our country has been exposed to come after someone who is a, a writer and activist of my background you know, at this point, you know, they were able to do that because my wife and I were already in a very fragile, vulnerable state because we had been producing her theater production, She, a choreo play, which is actually about the Me Too moment, about ending violence against raping girl, ending violence against women and girls, uh, is about rape culture. And so for someone to even accuse me, you know, a pro-feminist man, an ally, someone who's been in solidarity with women and girls for, the, for half my life, you know, who can count people like Gloria Steinem and Bell Hooks and Evans, or who's now known as V, as, as friends, as sisters, as supporters, was just beyond me. But they got away with it because they, they understood that my wife and I basically had no money, no resources to even defend ourselves because mm -hmm. we're just activists, we're just artists, we're just educators. And because I was embarrassed by the situation, I'd even tell my friends in the media, you know I know people in the media all over the country, including yourself. It was very humbling and embarrassing experience that we kept thinking that it was going to go away. Our first lawyer was so terrible that that's how it ended up going to trial in the first place. But the thing that we realized, it was simply a money grab. And so 
To your response, absolutely not, sir, because the truth is the truth. I feel the way that Frederick Douglass felt after he escaped from slavery. I feel the way that, that people like Dr. King felt when he came out against the Vietnam War. We have to tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Aaron Scott and those folks with Fox Rothschild in Minneapolis and the folks who are in the national office of Fox Rothschild in Philadelphia and the City Pages in Minnesota and the Star Tribune in Minnesota, they need to be held accountable for the racism that they displayed toward my wife and I simply because this was a money grab. That's all it was. Can I just say that, um, you know, I went to college in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and, you know, coming out of New York City, and I grew up in the New York City of you know, of marches because of like the, the racist killings of people like Yusuf Hawkins and Michael Stewart and Ms. Bumpers. And I know you're familiar with all those cases. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I thought I was Mr. New York City, you know, grizzled guy with more than a few calluses. And I went out to Minnesota and I couldn't believe what I experienced out there, what I saw out there. Not just the reservoirs of repression, of oppression, but of anger, too, at that oppression. Like I, I really wasn't surprised at all that this started in Minneapolis, St. Paul, because the gap between what they say and people's lived experiences is so profound. It's, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And, you know, if people I would suggest to your listeners, just go to the Fox Rothschild website for Minneapolis, St. Paul. Look at Aaron Scott and all the folks on that law firm and notice that you barely see any people of color and not a single black lawyer represented at that firm. Mm. And That's now they're the problem right there. Lives, and now they're putting out Black Lives Matter statements. And now they're putting out Black Lives Matter statements. And so what we're talking about is this kind of hypocrisy. You know, what we're talking about is a reckless disregard for the lives of black people. You know, and when, when, I, when I was on trial, when the whole thing was unfolding from December 2017, when we first got the letter saying they were suing us for all this money, December 2018, I listened to this gentleman, you know, recklessly savage my character, sir. You know, make it seem like I was a liar, I was dishonest, you know, that we were just basically trying to destroy the life and the career of this, this woman, April Sellers. It was unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable, you know. And I was angry about it, you know, because I was like, who is this person that can get away with this? Who's this, 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 this lawyer that can actually do this? Because he saw this as an opportunity to come up for himself. And so what I think that they, uh, they, these folks don't understand is that I am a writer with a massive platform. And there's simply no way, because I'm also a trained journalist, I remember every single detail of everything that happened. And you better believe I'm going to document every single detail of what happened for the record, because even the publications, the newspapers were inaccurate. The two journalists, as I said in the articles in my book, they were at the trial for all of two days each, one a day each, a couple hours, and then they left. And so they didn't even know what was going on. And so they actually participated in the same racist portrayal of us as the lawyer from the Fox Rothschild law firm was doing, Aaron Scott, as well as what the judge was doing. And even the judge, in spite of you know her letting this go to trial, actually said to Aaron Scott several times, because we offered to apologize if we had the wrong person, they refused an apology because what they wanted was money. Well, guess what, sir? There is no money. There is no money. They're never going to see any money because there's no money. So the whole thing was a waste of the law firm's time, a waste of the law firm's money. And that lawyer, Aaron Scott, should be held accountable for misusing his law firm and their resources and the legal system of Minnesota, of Hennepin County and Minnesota, to actually prosecute black people. That's what was going on. Now, I... For folks who don't know, your, your book, When We Free the World, which from what I've read is utterly fantastic and I can't recommend it enough, you know, that that's 
Only All praises to the God, sir. Thank you. Oh, it's a terrific book. And it's a series of essays about disparate subjects. But, you know, of course, Minnesota is a part of it. But also, you know, speaking about Russell Simmons, speaking about letter from father to child. Uh, it, it's just it's really moving, incredible stuff. What, what's the common thread to you that, that unites these essays? The common thread for me is, is freedom and justice and equality for all people, and, and everyone should be treated humanely. You know, I am anti-racism, I'm anti-sexism, I'm anti-classism, homophobia, transphobia. I don't, be, I don't support anti-Semitism, I don't support Islamophobia, I don't support ableism, a, a blatant hatred and disregard for disabled people. I, I love immigrant people, no matter where they come from on the planet. You know, I think, you know, older people, younger people, I believe in real democracy, not this, this fake democracy where we, we roll it out conveniently when national protests happen and some of us start saying, making statements. Like one reason why I love and admire you, Dave Zirin, is that you've been consistent, consistent way before it was popular to say some of the things that you've been saying for many years. You've been saying that you've been speaking truth to power, as we say, in, in, in activist circles. And so that's what the book is about. Let's really talk about truth to power and, you know, who has power, who does not. I'll bring it back to Minnesota for a second. The thing that I say in the essay, the last essay of the book, is that what saddened me is that this working class white sister activist artist, April Sellers, who was on one side of the table, you know, suing me and my wife, Jenna Parker, activists, artists, educators, you feel what I'm saying? Not realizing that we were actually being pitted against each other. It was all, all very, it was classic divide and conquer, but that's the nature of the world that we live in. We pit people against each other because of race, because of color, because of skin color, gender, gender identity, etc. Because who does it benefit? The people who actually don't want to share power with the masses of us on the planet. That's the reality. No, that's real talk right there. No doubt about it. Um, I, I gotta know, like, what, what's is, is, is there a next step for you with anything that happened in Minnesota? Is there any effort? I mean, I mean, is that chapter done in your life right now? As far as I'm concerned, it's done because I have to go. I mean, it destroyed me financially. You want to know the truth? It destroyed me financially. It took a heavy toll on my marriage. I can't get into anything further than that about that. But it destroyed us. It destroyed us. It destroyed us. It did heavy, heavy damage to us, sir. You know, um, and it, it's difficult to write I can't about. Even, Pardon me, sir? Was it difficult to write about? Yeah. Yeah. All of it was. Because it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, uh, you know, the thing is, um, people are asking, why are people protesting? Now, black people are tired of, of being hated and oppressed shot at physically with guns, you know, killed, need to death. We're tired of having to be on pins and needles at its places of work. We're tired of being taken to court, you know, being sued for stuff like this. We're tired of people calling the police on us when we're at Starbucks uh, or when we're in Central Park just feeding some birds. We're tired of, of people just acting as if our lives do not matter at all. We're tired of it. We're absolutely tired of it. And that's why you see so much outrage around the country. And I think what has happened with white sisters and brothers who have, uh, who have a sense of humanity about them, when they saw is a combination of Donald Trump being the president, and I think these white sisters and brothers realizing he doesn't even like us. He doesn't like half the country that didn't vote for him. So he doesn't care about white people like us. We, they also have witnessed his policies over these first three years of his administration. They've witnessed these videos like George Floyd. They saw what happened to Breonna Taylor. And then they saw how people have been treated during this pandemic, which is gross. You know, we have 120,000 plus Americans dead. You know, we are now halfway 
to the we're close to halfway to the number of people who died in the Civil War and in World War II, which is the greatest casualties of any uh, uh, wars that we've had. We're going to pass that number of 291,000 Americans dead in World War II by the end of this year because of the gross neglect of President Trump and his administration. That's why I believe that white brothers and sisters are like enough, and that's why they're out there saying Black Lives Matter and down with white supremacy and all the signs that they're carrying because people realize this is unjust to all of us, un- mm-hmm. all of us. What what are your thoughts as a as a journalist and as a historian as well, which is what I consider you as well? What what are, you, what are your thoughts when you see these statues come down? I think it's poetic justice. I think that it's a visceral response to the gross miseducation that all of us had. Look, I say it all the time. Not only have black people and people of color been miseducated in America, white folks have been miseducated as well. You know, think about it. If you're Jewish, if you're Italian, if you're Irish, if you're Polish, if you're German, if you're from Eastern Europe, you know, no matter what your background is, what did you actually learn about yourself kindergarten through the 12th grade? What did you learn about yourself if you were fortunate enough to go to college? Absolutely nothing. Everything revolved around this concept of whiteness, 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 white supremacy, reducing you to whiteness, not a human being. And so I think they're even, white folks are saying, wait, who are these people? Why do we have these statues up of folks who were slave masters, folks who supported uh, uh, the Confederacy, folks who are still holding on to the Confederacy? We too have been grossly miseducated. Who is this Columbus person who participated in the genocide, the genocide, the genocide of indigenous people? We have a right to question everything. And when I hear people, Brother Dave, say that, you know, we can't change this stuff. Well, yes, we can, because we've done it before. There used to be a time in America where there was segregation, whites only signs and colors only signs, but because of movement, protest, people in the streets, white folks, black folks, all kinds of folks, we push those things away. That's what's happening now. We're pushing those things away. When's the last time you felt uh, this much of a sense of hope uh, in terms of... I feel it every single day of my life, sir. I don't care how hard life is. You know, I wake up every day with a sense of hope. I have no choice. I'm a black person in America, 401 years here from 1619 to now. My family, my people have gone through horrific stuff, but I love all people no matter what their background. I love all people no matter what their background. What gives me hope every single day is simply being able to breathe and get up and continue with my mother with an eighth grade education that she has and my grandmother, her mother who could not read and write. They had to keep going, so I have no choice but to keep going because I realize this fight is not just for me. It's for all of us, and it's for this country, and that means all of us. That means all of us. Mm. His name is Kevin Powell. The book, which I cannot recommend highly enough, is called When We Free the World. Is is there anything else you want to get across about the book to, to our audience? No, just that it's exclusive on Apple Books for now. That's the deal that I worked out with Apple Books, which I'm really excited about. They've been incredibly supportive. Uh, the audio book will be coming in July, also exclusively with Apple Books, and then we'll put the paperback out sometime after Labor Day in, in September. And I just encourage people to use it as a resource tool. I know folks have been asking for things. We talk about race in the book. We talk about gender. We talk about class. We talk about America, and there's some conversations that we need to have, and I, my goal is to really help be a part of those, uh, help those conversations move forward. That's all it is. And, you know, I've, I don't know about you, but I've been very encouraged by the amount of attention the book has gotten up to now. I mean, it's shocked. <laughs> I mean, because I, I feel like between us, that's that some of your terrific books have been underappreciated over time. Well, it's a, the issues it's that a thankless job. It's a thankless job, as you know, uh, Brother Zyron, oh, to be a writer. You just hope that a couple people read your books. And so. If it's more than a couple, it's a blessing. And I, I'm shocked, but I'm thankful and I'm humbled and I'm grateful, especially because of what I described at the beginning of this interview, what we've been through. 
I mean, a year ago, I didn't even know if I would be around a year from now, you know, to be honest with you, because of how ugly that whole Minnesota situation was for us. It was it was debilitating. You know, it was really deeply debilitating. I can't stress that enough. And so even if there's just a few mentions of this book and, 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 and things now, it just it means a lot to me. I can't tell you how humbling it is. I, I, I can't stress that enough. I'm just really grateful to people to even want to read it. Well, that's fantastic. And, hey, I always ask this of my guests. Uh, well, but as you were writing the book, what music inspired you? I know you're a big music guy. I just saw you on Netflix from the Sam Cooke documentary where you were terrific. You. What what, you music, what did you have a soundtrack as you were writing this and putting it together? <laughs> Don't laugh at me. People think I'm a, uh, I mean, I, listen, I actually listen to a lot of classical. I need a peaceful music for this because there was so much turmoil that, the, that started the book. And so a lot of classical music, a lot of classical music, a lot of, um, um, a lot of jazz, honestly. So between classical and jazz, which really uh, get me by, I'm a deep lover uh, of Chopin and Beethoven. I'm a deep lover of, of Miles Davis and Billy Holiday and Coltrane. You know, I listen to a lot of Bill Evans because, you know, who had played and worked with, with folks like, like uh, Miles. You know, he has some great work of solo piano and stuff that he did with Tony Bitt in the 70s that I think is brilliant. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that got me by. Kevin Powell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, as part of the national uprising against police violence and for black lives, monuments to white supremacy are coming down all over. Some activists have taken matters into their own hands, yanking down statues of slaveholders and colonizers. At other times, institutions have decided that the time is right to face their own history and remove the problematic. Recently, the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco announced that it would remove its own bust of Avery Brundage, whose massive collection is displayed in the museum, from its prominent location and place it in storage to collect dust. Brundage was the iron-fisted president of the International Olympic Committee from 1952 to 1972. In Olympic circles, Brundage is infamous for his racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism. Time and again, he took positions that placed him on the wrong side of history. The removal of Brundage's bust is long overdue. His toxic concoction of isms and his perma-frown belong in the dustbin of history. Brundage clung to the belief that politics and the Olympics should never mix, famously proclaiming, we actively combat the introduction of politics into the Olympic movement and are adamant against its use of the Olympic Games as a tool or as a weapon by any organization. His legacy remains in IOC policy. Earlier this year, the committee explicitly prohibited, quote, gestures of a political nature like a hand gesture or kneeling. In the late 1960s, Brundage was known as Slavery Avery for his anti-black racism. When athletes and their allies formed the Olympic Project for Human Rights in 1967, 
They listed a series of demands, among them the restoration of Muhammad Ali's boxing title and the exclusion from U.S. athletic events of all-white sports squads from South Africa and Rhodesia. They also singled out slavery Avery by calling for the removal of the anti-Semitic and anti-Black personality Avery Brundage from his post as chairman of the IOC. Brundage did not take kindly to John Carlos and Tommy Smith's iconic act of political dissent on the medal stand at the 68 Olympics when they thrust their black glove fists into the Mexico City sky to promote black freedom and human rights. Brundage played a key role in getting the athletes booted from the Olympic Village. Weeks later, in response to people who wrote him letters chastising Carlos and Smith, Brundage offered a range of castigations from the boys were sent home, but they should not have been there in the first place to, as a matter of fact, people of that kind should not have been on the Olympic team at all. It left international repercussions very harmful to our country. This was not a schoolboy prank. When it came to women in sports, Brundage was a reactionary. Another nickname, Avery Umbridge, captured his feelings about the participation of women athletes at the Olympics. In 1967, setting the tone as president of the IOC, Brundage wrote in a letter to fellow members, many still believe that events for women should be eliminated from the games, but this group is now a minority. There is still, however, a well-grounded protest against events which are not truly feminine, like putting a shot, or those too strenuous for most of the opposite sex, such as distance runs. At the time, only 20% of Olympic athletes were women. Brundage was also anti-Semitic. In the early 1930s, as momentum built to boycott the 36 Berlin Olympics because of Hitler's increasingly alarming attacks on the Jewish people, Brundage came to the Germans' defense. As the head of the American Olympic Committee at the time, Brundage traveled to Germany to quote-unquote investigate anti-Jewish discrimination for himself and concluded that everything was fine and dandy. He told the New York Times, the fact that no Jews have been named so far to compete for Germany doesn't necessarily mean they have been discriminated against on that score. In 40 years of Olympic history, I doubt if the number of Jewish athletes competing from all nations totaled 1% of all those in the games. Now that number, 1%, pulled from the dark recesses of Brundage's mind wasn't close to accurate. In private, Brundage stripped away the varnish. In one letter to IOC power broker Siegfried Edstrom, he complained, the New York newspapers, which are largely controlled by Jews, devote a very considerable percentage of their news columns to the situation in Germany. The articles are 99% anti-Nazi. He said that as if it was a terrible thing. After Hitler's Olympics, Brundage poured on the praise, revealing his alarmingly retrograde politics. We can learn much from Germany, he wrote. We too, if we wish to preserve our institutions, must stamp out communism. We too must take steps to arrest the decline of patriotism. In his personal notes, he even concluded, an intelligent, beneficent dictatorship is the most efficient form of government. Observe what's happened in Germany in the 1930s. Now, San Francisco's Asian Art Museum, they're doing the right thing. To be sure, the museum has become far less dependent on Brundage's original collection, making his largesse far less essential to the museum's mission. The museum director, Dr. Jason Xu, says, in more recent years, especially in the context of our 50th anniversary, our research yielded new insights into Brundage's views as well as the perspective that Brundage was in fact only part 
of the museum's origin story. Avery Brundage consistently threaded together some of the most virulent strains of right-wing hate. The removal of his bust from the San Francisco Asian Art Museum is a righteous decision. There is much to learn from Brundage. He should be studied. His contributions to Olympic history need to be understood, but he has long forfeited the place of honor and respect. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now... Back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down, where we give our Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. The Just Stand Up award Stand up. goes to Morehouse College for canceling the fall sports season. It is the only, only rational decision people can make if you care about the safety and well-being of athletes. Look at the number of athletes from places like Clemson that are being treated basically like they work in a meat processing plant and they're trying to infect them to shocking degrees with COVID. I mean, it's completely immoral. It's completely irrational. It's completely cruel and unusual. So good job, Morehouse. I expect many colleges to follow your path and i absolutely unequivocally condemn and want to say just sit your ass down to Dabo sweeney and the people at clemson for what they're doing to their players but it's not Dabo sweeney who gets the just sit your ass down award tempting though it may be it goes to the um franchise owner of the miami dolphins steven ross Sit your ass down. Stephen Ross announced to great fanfare that he was giving millions of dollars to his racial justice organization called Rise. Yet Stephen Ross is also a multi-million dollar supporter of Donald Trump. Funny how that works. That's something that Kenny Stills, who used to play for the Dolphins, pointed out and called out as a rancid hypocrisy. How can you say that you're trying to build for any kind of racial justice while at the same time supporting an unequivocal bigot like Donald Trump. And uh, David Leonard, uh, who's a terrific uh, professor and author out of Washington State, he put out some tweets about Rise, which I just want to read right here for folks. Uh, he said, This is what he tweeted. He said, Rise has a glossary of terms, and let's just say I have questions about them. Among other things, in its terms, it includes the definition of reverse racism. While I could be wrong, it doesn't seem as if RISE is about combating a systemic racism. Dialogue, yes. Education, yes. Pledges, yes. Raise awareness, evoke sympathy, and encourage action. That's what they are about. But systemic racism, not so much. The website includes its report on, quote, changing perceptions and building relationships between youth and law enforcement, which makes clear what they are really about. It took me two minutes on their website to know there are a lot of things, but combating systemic racism, much less anti-blackness and white supremacy, is not one of them. A metaphor for America, giving millions to persevere the status quo, all while pretending to embrace justice. 
I think that says it perfectly. So Stephen Ross and your group rise, sit your ass down. Go promote your consciousness raising at another time. We're in the streets calling for much higher plateaus of excellence than what you're fighting for. I do want to add a quick uh, Kaepernick watch if I could, just that I'm working through this book, The Kaepernick Effect. I'm going through dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews that I did with young people who've taken a knee during sporting events. And I'm just, as I'm going over the interviews again, I'm so in awe of their courage. And I'm in awe of the reach that Colin Kaepernick had in terms of his ability to reach these kids and inspire them to take a knee, to stand up, to raise their fist and to do all the things that we don't associate with high school athletes, with young people, but just a complete absence of cynicism by these young folks. They're, they're trying to change the world, uh, you know, and it's, it's an amazing thing to think about and sift through. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much, Kevin Powell. Thank you so much. To my producer, David Tigaboo, who's got his own podcast. What's it called, David? Run It Black. Ah, oh, Run It Black. Such a good show. People should check that out. Full endorsement of the Edge of Sports podcast family. Everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>